you know, sort of against that background, if you think of that as the mainstream choice that parents were offered, right, either institutionalization or home care with no support, then you can kind of understand how Camp Hill grew so quickly, right? It was this radically different and radically more accepting option for parents. And so Camp Hill started, right, as this group of three small communities in northern Scotland in the 1940s, and then very quickly spread into an international movement that now consists of 130-odd communities around the world. Welcome to the Botsteber Austrian-American Podcast. Our guest today is Catherine Sorrells, an Associate Professor of History at the University of Cincinnati, where she is also the chair of the Taft Health Humanities Research Group. In 2018, Catherine received a BIAS grant to research Jewish physicians and therapists who fled Nazi Vienna and founded what would become the Camp Hill Movement. Camp Hill is a global network of intentional communities that cares for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities and is now headquartered in the United States. So I want to welcome you again. I am really grateful to have this opportunity to talk with you about your work and to learn more about the really interesting things that you found in your research that I think uh, not only have relevance in diverse fields, but I think has some relevance today. You mentioned in one of your notes that you grew up in a Camp Hill community. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in a 12-member household. Um, with my mother and a few other volunteers, and then also adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities. And it was in, in some ways like an extended family um, within the household. And then, you know, and that's sort of the model that these households are structured like extended family households. And, you know, that extends to the community as a whole. So, you know, we had a whole sort of cohort of children, you know, in my generation. And, you know, I mean, I imagine it's a little bit like growing up with cousins who are all sort of walking distance from you. And, you know, some of those relationships have really lasted. I'm still um, in touch with my sort of childhood best friend from that period. But my mother left when I went to college, and I mostly lost touch with Camp Hill other than those particular friendships. Um, and I really didn't think much about it other than that I guess I'd had a slightly unusual childhood. But yeah, then I studied abroad in Austria as an undergraduate, and I developed a real interest in Austrian history, um, and particularly Austrian Jewish history, um, and history of ideas, particularly ideas of evolution in history. And I ended up doing my PhD in this field, Austrian history, Austrian Jewish history in particular, and writing my first book in that field. And then it you know, sort of dawned on me at some point when I was thinking about what my next project could be that I had actually unintentionally acquired all of the historical background and the necessary skills to understand Camp Hill, not just from a personal perspective, but from an academic perspective as an historian. So, so I became really interested in, in Camp Hill from that perspective, from the perspective of Austrian history, um, Austrian Jewish history, and the history of medicine and, and disability. 
I'm really interested in your research and this thinking about evolution. Do you mean that you were interested in the evolution in intellectual thought? Well, that's that's part of it. And then it's also just ideas of evolution, uh, the ways in which people in the social sciences, for example, early sociology, as well as people just in internationalist movements thought in terms of human evolution. And the sort of unpleasant side of that is social Darwinism. Uh, but I was working on figures who tried to use evolutionist ideas to argue for international cooperation instead of to justify you know, competition and war between nations. You know, the sort of people who objected to the use of Darwin's theory and evolution, evolutionist thought more generally in the context of human societies as if it were natural that human societies would always be at war um, in a struggle for the fittest, right? So there were, there were lots of people who were using evolutionism because everybody was using evolutionism, but they were using it in a, in a very different way. And that is not sort of remembered um, in history as much as, as I think it should be. Wow. That's very interesting. And then you go into, it's almost like an about face with your current research. Hmm. What do you mean by that? I'm curious. It seems to me then that Dr. Koenig and the Campbell movement, that their philosophy ran counter to the idea of using evolution as a basis for moving forward or conducting any sort of interaction, I guess. Yeah, I mean, Carl Koenig was very sort of concerned about social Darwinist thinking, very opposed to it, absolutely. Um, because this sort of thinking, social Darwinist thinking, is very much also tied up in eugenicist perspectives in, in the eugenics movement and the notion that some races and nations are more advanced than others. You see the same kind of thinking going on about disability, right? Um, hmm. That... Some people um, are, you know, born in their terminology defective and are holding back the progress of the race. Um, this is a kind of thinking that justified all sorts of horrible things like sterilization and institutionalization. And it's very much um, the sort of, it's very much the perspective that Koenig and the other founders of Camp Hill were opposing. And it's what made Camp Hill such a radical option in the middle of the 20th century, right? This is the period of, you know, the height of institutionalization um, in which babies born with disabilities, um, particularly those that could be diagnosed often at birth, for example, children, babies with Down syndrome, would be institutionalized you know, immediately as babies and never see their families again, right? And this was just, this was doctor's advice at the time. And, you know, sort of against that background, if you think of that as the mainstream choice that parents were offered, right, either institutionalization or home care with no support, then you can kind of understand how Camp Hill grew so quickly, right? It was this radically different and radically more accepting option, for parents. And so Camp Hill started, right, as this group of 
three small communities in northern Scotland in the 1940s and then very quickly spread into an international movement that now consists of 130-odd communities around the world. Would you describe the Campbell community? All right. So the Campbell movement is an international movement of intentional communities for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. And what that means is that it's made up of what people in the movement call villages. And these are villages with farms, gardens, craft workshops, bakeries, cafes, things like that, a number of households. And these are extended family-style households composed of abled and disabled people. And traditionally in Camp Hill communities, no one was paid for their work. All funds were pooled and distributed to those as they need, you know, to individuals as they needed them. Um, and this is something that has begun to change recently in some communities, but we could come back to that if it becomes relevant. Um, and the point really is to cultivate a sense of home and a sense of belonging for all community members, both abled and disabled. Hmm. Okay. And there are communities for children that have schools. There are transitional communities for college-aged young adults. There are adult communities that are much more sort of working communities, right, that have farms and gardens, um, although all of them have farms and gardens in some, some way. And also, more recently, communities for elders, because the movement is 80 years old now. And so there's a growing number of people who spent most of their lives in the communities and want to spend their retirement in the communities as well. And so it was begun by Austrian refugees in Scotland in 1939. And as I mentioned, right, they in the 1940s, they established these first three communities, taking in the first Austrian and German Jewish um, children who were fleeing, and then also taking in British children with disabilities. And then it spreads in the 1950s to the rest of the UK, to Ireland, to Central and Northern Europe. In the 60s, 70s, and 80s, that's a really crucial period of expansion when lots of hippies and activists and conscientious objectors flocked to the villages and started new ones um, in North America, in the US and Canada, um, as well as in South Africa and Botswana. And then since the 1990s, it's expanded to include the U.S. West Coast, as well as Hawaii and countries from the Soviet Union um, and Asian countries, um, India and Thailand. And so today, as I mentioned, there are about 130 Camp Hill communities around the world. So it's a global movement. Um, it doesn't have an official headquarters. It's very sort of dispersed in its um, sort of leadership structure. Okay. Uh, but the first Camp Hill community in the United States which is in New York State, plays a particularly sort of strong role. So shall I say a few words about Koenig at this point? I did want to ask you a couple of questions about that. Yeah, of course. When you talked about the communities, are there different communities for different groups, such as some for retired people, some for college-age kids, and some for children? Yes. I mean, so the I'm using village and community as synonyms. Right? Mm -hmm. These are intentional okay. communities. They, okay. they have tended to be rural, although they're starting to move into towns as well. Mm -hmm. um, so they're sort of, they started out anyway as very sort of self-contained village communities in which people could, you know, live, work, and share a cultural, social, and spiritual life all together within this sort of sheltered enclosed environment. And the the reason for that has 
largely to do with the, the hostility to disability at the time in the mid 20th century when the movement began, right? Um, there was a, a, a real sense that what people with disabilities needed was seclusion from a society that was hostile to disability. Hmm. Um, so this is in a, a period very much before integration became the goal or the expectation. Um, and so that's something that's changing now. But yeah, so children's communities, uh, which are called schools, are much more than schools, right? Because the, it'll be a community that has all these various households where the teachers and other care workers live in households with the children that they teach. And the children all go to the community school. The house parents, as they're called, uh, the, the volunteers who live with them, also will go to the school or to the farm or to the garden, whatever, and teach the children, not only the children they live with, but all of the members of the community, all the children in the community, all the students. And then you have the same sort of pattern in adult communities. People play all these various different roles. There'll be a household with, you know, a mix of people with people who are abled and disabled, and they will all have their various roles in the village and the bakery, for example, or on the farm or in the garden. And then there are various roles in their own households where they prepare meals together and socialize and, so on. They have their own terms within the movement that are not used outside of it, right? So the the people with disabilities who live in Camp Hill communities are not called residents, as they would be in a conventional setting. They're called villagers. And the volunteers who do the care work and, you know, also the work on the farms and gardens and so on are called co-workers. So if I use those terms at some point, that's that's what I'm talking about. And the, the families, are they considered co-workers? Um, the parents, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So in each household, traditionally, there would be a couple or a single parent and their children. And then the other co-workers would be young volunteers from all over the world. Often, for, for a very long time, there were lots of young volunteers in the United States uh, from Germany because serving in a Camp Hill community was an alternative to military service in Germany. But um, it's become much more diverse. There are volunteers from all over the world in the communities. And these are sort of young people who might be taking a gap year before college or might be a little older and you know know about the movement, have learned about the movement and, and be sort of trying it out as a longer term option. So the, all of those people in the various different roles are called co-workers and the children who grow up in the communities, um, who are the, the children of co-workers, are referred to as staff kids. So I was a staff kid. There, there's traditionally been a strong connection to Germany and Austria, more Germany than Austria, actually. There's only one Camp Hill community in Austria, and I'm not totally sure why, but they they tend to refer to the region as Middle Europe, which is a direct translation of the German term Middle Europa. And you'll see a lot of that in Camp Hill, a lot of terminology that's a direct translation from German. The connection to the Austrian founders and the sort of German character of the movement and of anthroposophy is really strong. So it's Camp Hill is very much an international global movement now, but it's 
in some ways, it's in some ways it still has a sort of German, Austrian, Central European diasporic identity. So then this might be a good opportunity to take us back to its origins, how it's connected to that that beginning time in Austria. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so the story really has to begin a little bit before the movement started, um, before okay. even Vienna. And that's, um, it starts with Karl Koenig, and who was a Viennese pediatrician, and his wife, Tilla Koenig, and this group of 15 young volunteers that helped them found this school. And the Koenigs had founded a school for children with disabilities in Germany. But they had had to flee Nazi Germany for Vienna in 1936. So Karl Koenig had grown up in a Jewish family in Vienna, but then he had done some work in Switzerland and had founded this school in Germany. And by the time he came back to Vienna, he had a very sort of different um, perspective. He was a Christian anthroposophist. So I should explain a little bit um, about anthroposophy. It's a Western esoteric spiritual movement founded by the Austrian philosopher Rudolf Steiner. And I won't go into a lot of detail about anthroposophy, but it combines Eastern and Western mysticisms, and it also contains a strong Christian orientation. So in Vienna, Dr. Koenig began mentoring a group of young anthroposophists, all but one of whom had Jewish heritage and many of whom were medical students at the University of Vienna, where Koenig himself had studied and where he had actually first learned about anthroposophy. Mm. And so they, they met weekly to discuss a variety of topics. It was sort of a cultural and social you know, group. And after the Anschluss in 1938, they met and decided to flee Nazi Austria and try to reassemble abroad. They didn't know where that would necessarily be. They didn't know, you know, each of them had to flee on their own and they would go anywhere that they could go basically, right? And so they didn't know if and where they would be able to reassemble, but they sort of pledged to each other that if they could, they would found another school for disabled children together abroad. And Dr. Koenig had applied for permission to emigrate to the UK and to requalify as a doctor there. And he was extremely lucky because his application was accepted. Right? There were thousands of Austrian Jewish doctors trying to flee in 1938. And Koenig was one of just 50 who were granted permission to requalify in the UK before wow. the Second World War broke out. Right? So thousands trying to flee, only 50 granted permission, not just to enter the country, but to requalify to practice. Um, and from the UK, he was then able to negotiate visas for 15 of his young followers, members of this youth group. And so they were able to reassemble in Scotland in 1939 and to start the school. And they started the school with the idea, what was the idea behind starting the school? Who were they, how did that originate? Um, who were they seeking to um, support, to um what were their specific ideas around that? Yeah, that's a good question. So partly there's this history, right, that Koenig and his wife had already founded a school for children with disabilities in Germany. Okay. And so in some sense, they were rebuilding that work. But in another sense, it was very different because 
Koenig's original school and other anthroposophical schools for children with disabilities in Europe were essentially boarding schools, right? They were unconventional in their ideas about disability, but they functioned as yeah, boarding schools. And that just wasn't possible in Scotland. This group of refugees were given a house by a wealthy Scottish couple who were anthroposophists themselves, and they sort of took them in and gave them a house. And this house had to serve all of their purposes. They had to live in it. The children had to live in it. The school had to be there. And so the the, the particular form that Camp Hill took as this network of intentional communities that was focused on the household and focused on creating a sense of belonging, that really in some way came out of the particular predicament that they and the first children faced as refugees. They needed to rebuild a sense of home for themselves, Mm. a sense of belonging, and they did that with the children. So the Camp Hill movement, in a sense, grew out of this particular predicament that they found themselves in, but how did it continue to grow then? It continued to grow in no small part because they couldn't keep up with demand. Wow. Parents who found out about the communities would approach Camp Hill, Dr. Koenig, and ask for more more communities, ask to raise the money to buy new houses and start new communities. And so actually this, this began rather quickly within a few months of the founding of this first community in called Kirkton House, right? That doesn't really matter. <laughs> but after the founding of this first community, the Macmillan family, the brother of the, the British prime minister at one point, uh, reached out to Koenig and they had a son with disabilities and they asked if he could be, be admitted and there was no space. And so the Macmillans bought them a much larger house and the community grew. And then that sort of started a pattern of the acquisition of large sort of estate manors, whatever they might be called, these large homes that could be then remodeled to serve as these extended family households and could incorporate school rooms and so on and so forth. And so I actually interviewed a parent of one of the, or the first generation, second generation of children in Britain to go to Camp Hill. And he was also one of the early parent advocates in the sort of nascent autism and sort of advocacy movement. And he said that Camp Hill really quickly became known among parents of children with disabilities as the Eden of special education. Oh. So, yeah, so, so these parents played a really important role. They did a lot of raising of awareness, of sort of publicizing Camp Hill to their networks and of fundraising in order to help the movement expand so that they could accept more children. Why do you think, I mean, it strikes me that this could have, Dr. Koenig could have just developed another boarding house, but he didn't. Yeah. Um, So I think it connects partly to that early circumstance, right, that these were a group of of refugees who had to innovate because of their circumstances, 
And so, you know, Camp Hill at its beginnings really was very sort of experimental and there was a sort of trial and error element. Mm-hmm. Um, they they took in a much broader variety sort of, of, of children with, with different sorts of disabilities early on, not just intellectual and developmental disabilities, but um, blind children and deaf children, and also just children who had been labeled as delinquent, quote-unquote troubled youth, particularly boys. And the the sort of... How do I put this? What very quickly became the model, right? Or the, the, not the model, but what seemed to work, I guess I would say, what seemed to work for them very, very quickly was, or where they, I don't, hmm, let me think how to say this. So I think they very quickly became convinced that this model of shared home life, of the extended family household. Okay was therapeutic in itself Ah. right so the communities for children that were schools the treatment if you will right because that's the terminology that was used at the time okay we don't necessarily talk about it that way anymore but the treatment was not just special education in the schools right it wasn't just pedagogical but a lot of the goals that they were trying to achieve with these children happened in the home. And so they sort of did this trial and error experimentation with all these various different kinds of disabilities and types of, of households. And they, they arrived at the model that really sort of solidified and became what Camp Hill is today, which is communities for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. And I think that has to do partly with the problem that one of the greatest challenges for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities is acceptance and inclusion in a, in a deep sense, not just in a sense of being present in a space with other people, with abled people, right? A physical presence of, of a person with disabilities, you know, in, a college cafeteria, right, is, does not mean that they necessarily feel welcomed and included. It doesn't mean they feel they belong. And so Camp Hill seemed to offer something really important and meaningful, which was a sense of home and a sense of belonging that was really missing in mainstream approaches to intellectual and developmental disability in particular. There is so much that is really striking about that. Um, I, I don't even know where to begin. The idea that a community of refugees finds a way to create a sense of belongingness for people who are othered. And at the same time that Dr. Koenig and his associates and his family, that he had been so, he must have struggled uh, in some way with his own sense of belonging, um, having to flee uh, Nazi-occupied um, Austria and uh, and even being uh, imprisoned, yes, as an enemy alien. I'm not sure for how long he was. Yeah, on the Isle of Man. On the Isle of Man. I would think that those were highly traumatic experiences, and yet he was able to turn that into something that could create 
um, community for people who uh, were so disenfranchised um, and just were actually going through terrible things um, in Nazi Germany at that time as well. So I don't know if you want to say anything to that, or I, I just had to sort of communicate those ideas. So I think that that really gets to the heart of it, to the, the point, right, which is that Koenig and the other founders very much felt that they had a special understanding of children with disabilities because of their own trauma as refugees, right? So they, they Koenig actually described Camp Hill as a sort of alliance or, or coming together of social refugees, which were children with disabilities, and political refugees, which were the founders and himself. And by that, he meant that they were both rejected by the society that they lived in. The children with disabilities for social reasons and the refugees for political reasons. And one might also describe that as, you know, it's not entirely just political, right? It's a, at least in the Nazis' own conception of it, racial persecution, right? Sure. But the point is that they had both faced that kind of hostility and rejection and persecution from the society that they lived in, and that gave them an understanding of each other and was sort of a basis for finding a sense of home and belonging together, not, not only for the children with disabilities, but just as much for the refugees themselves. Thanks for listening to our first podcast with Catherine Sorrells on the origins of the Camp Hill Movement. Please stay tuned for podcast two, in which we continue our discussion and delve into anthroposophy, Hans Osberger, and more. This episode was produced by Dr. Catherine Sorrells, Elizabeth Leitzel, and myself. Our theme music is Hungarian Dance by Underscore Orchestra. I'm Adriana Lacona. Thanks for listening. The Botsteber Austrian American Podcast is produced by the Botsteber Institute for Austrian American Studies, which seeks to promote an understanding of the historic relationship between the United States and Austria, including the Habsburg Empire. To learn more about our grants, publications, events, and other programming, visit botsteberbias.org or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube. And I think that that distinction between a sort of American way of doing things and an Austrian way of doing things that to some degree come together in American Camp Hill communities, but I would say that the, the Austrian sort of approach really does set the agenda. I think that you see that also in the, not just the lifestyle, but in the approach to disability. I think that also reflects a difference between certain Austrian approaches and American approaches. Welcome to the Botsteber Austrian American Podcast. Can you say anything more about 
how they were bonded by the philosophy or the ideology of Rudolf Steiner, how that kind of added to the mix of, of all this. Yeah, absolutely. So let's see. I think from an American perspective, anthroposophy can be very confusing. And I'll say it was even confusing for me as a kid growing up in Camp Hill, right? I, I didn't study anthroposophy as a as a child growing up there. And I thought as a sort of young teenager that I grew up in a hippie commune. And so I called myself a hippie. And oh my. yeah. And a community member, a sort of elder community member who had, you know, come over from Scotland um, informed me that I was no such thing. And that <laughs> if I wanted to be a hippie, I was going to have to stop bathing and stop washing my clothes. Oh my. And yeah, I was horrified. And that was the end of my so-called hippie phase. Um, <laughs> But I think my mistake is understandable, and it's a mistake that a lot of people make because many people in Camp Hill have what most Americans would think of as a hippie aesthetic. So most women don't wear makeup and they don't shave their legs. People prefer clothing made with natural fibers and using natural dyes. Everyone eats organic food that they grow themselves. There's definitely a back-to-the-land vibe. They don't watch TV. You often find crystals and gnomes in people's homes. Um, they prefer alternative medicine. And in the United States, these things are very much associated with the counterculture, uh, with new age movements. And we tend to assume that these movements are sort of aligned with the pol political left. So we think we know how to situate all of this. Hmm. And that's not at all the case in Central Europe, right, where anthroposophy originated. And in Austria, it surprises no one if an organic farmer is culturally or even politically conservative. So people who live a natural lifestyle, people who dabble in alternative medicine, such as homeopathy, which is much more mainstream there than it is here, they exist on both ends of the political spectrum. You find people involved in these movements and lifestyles that are on the right and on the left and that are culturally conservative or liberal. And this is really helpful for understanding Camp Hill and anthroposophy as well. Right? They don't have a specific or determined political affiliation and so, or a cultural affiliation. And people in Camp Hill don't live a countercultural lifestyle. There may be an aesthetic that we associate with the counterculture, but they don't drink a lot of alcohol. They don't do drugs. They don't have wild parties. They don't practice free love, right? None of this would work well in a community that's built around caring for people with intellectual and, and, mm. and developmental disabilities, right? This is a working community. And so there's very much an aesthetic we associate with the counterculture, but the actual lifestyle choices don't fit well with what we expect of the counterculture. So I guess I would say that Camp Hill, particularly in the United States, has a culture that's an interesting sort of Austrian and American hybrid, and particularly Austrian anthroposophical and American hybrid. And so... I'm talking about the, the way the movement's lifestyle, the spirituality, the aesthetic choices, and the approach to health 
have very different significance in those two contexts. And many among the first generation of Americans to join the movement were hippies, but those of them who stayed in Camp Hill, once they realized that it had actually a pretty ascetic lifestyle, mm. um, they embraced that lifestyle. And the Central Europeans who came over to found the communities, right, the, the communities that started in the U.S., were started by some of the original founders from Austria who were sent from Scotland right, to build these communities. And they started to sort of accommodate a little bit to the American context they found in themselves in, right? So they started out as these very sort of buttoned up, formal, educated, Viennese, bourgeois community. And um, then, you know, you look a generation later and Birkenstock sandals with woolly socks becomes a sort of signature look. <laughs> Um, so I'm being a little cheeky with that, but my point is that most of us in the U.S. don't have all the cultural clues to place Camp Hill because it's this intriguing sort of hybrid or conglomeration of cultural influences. And the, the anthroposophical influences, they very much go along with a, a, with a fairly conservative lifestyle. And I, when I say conservative, I simply mean that there's a real emphasis on hard work and on, you know, sort of early to bed, early to rise. And these are individuals who, for whom faith is very important. So there's a lot of important sort of ritual in everyday life that structures everyday life, prayers before meals, for example, um, a weekly ritual or holiday known as the Bible evening which happens every Saturday evening. So it's a little bit sort of mirrors the Shabbat in Judaism, but that would be on Friday night before the Jewish Sabbath. This is on Saturday night before the Christian Sabbath. And there are Sunday services. And so anthroposophy has an important role in sort of informing the, the culture of the communities and also the way in which the daily life is very sort of uh, regular and ritualized and constant in some sense. It creates a very sort of calm, serious, purposeful environment. And you have all of that going on with what on the surface, if you just wandered into the community, looks very much like a sort of countercultural hippie commune environment. And I think that that distinction between a sort of American way of doing things and an Austrian way of doing things that to some degree come together in American Camp Hill communities, but I would say that the, the Austrian sort of approach really does set the agenda. I think that you see that also in the, not just the lifestyle, but in the approach to disability. I think that also reflects a difference between certain Austrian approaches and American approaches. How so? Right, so I found the two approaches, the Austrian and American approaches to autism in particular um, and to intellectual and, dis and developmental disabilities more generally to be very different. And 
I've also found that neither on its own fully addresses the needs of people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, right? So the two approaches have, I think anyway, a lot to learn from each other. So when Carl Koenig and other Jewish physicians and medical researchers fled Austria in the late 1930s, they ended up in a very different academic research environment than the one they had left. And I don't know if I mentioned this already, but all of the major, the, the main sort of pioneers of autism research, the, the doctors who introduced the modern autism diagnosis were from Austria. And some of them were working in Austria, some of them working abroad. And that's because sort of two thirds of the medical faculty in Vienna were Jewish and they had to flee after the Angelus. And so you have the same sort of tradition, academic tradition, research tradition, but it's being carried out now in two totally different academic contexts hmm. in the UK and the US on the one hand and in Austria. And so the, the Austrian physicians who arrived in the US, they came with a pretty broad conception of the parameters of the medical profession um, that encompassed not only the study of particular medical conditions, but also looked more broadly at their sort of social, cultural, and even economic contexts. So they were much more holistic, if you will. In the States. They, they, were, they came to the U.S. with that much more holistic perspective. Okay. They found in the United States that they had to adapt their approach to our context, in which the focus was overwhelmingly centered on disease causation. Oh. Right? Studying disease causation, that's where the academic positions were. That's where the money for research was. And that's in part because our medical system is profit-driven, and so the emphasis naturally is on finding cures. And of course, that's hugely important. Finding cures is hugely important, but it does become problematic sometimes. And in the case of disability, it meant that explanations and treatments for disability were based on finding the cause of disability in a particular biomedical event. So what matters is why is this person disabled and what is the medical event that caused it? And that leads to a particular perspective, or at least feeds a particular spec perspective of disability as, a, as being about defect, mm. right? About being a person with a medical defect. And if no cure seemed possible, that could lead to, the, to a view of people with disabilities as hopeless or incurable. And if you think about people in those terms, then things like institutionalization, just sort of sending someone away and warehousing them for their, their whole life, that becomes more understandable, right? We can understand how people thought in those terms if you think of people with disabilities as defective people. So it's, it's problematic from a sort of moral perspective, but it's also just not very good medicine. Um, disability is a lot more complicated. Mm and messier as a category than particular diseases. And so in some ways, this Austrian approach that the, the Austrian emigrate doctors came with initially was better suited to handle that messiness and that complexity of disability as a category. And Koenig's approach is a good example because he integrated healthcare, education, and social needs. And he saw them as equally important 
and as inseparable, right? So you see that sort of feeding into the model of Camp Hill, where it's not just about medical care, although medical care is offered. It's not just about education, although education is offered. It's also about home life, about social life, about a sense of belonging, all these things that are not just about asking what the biomedical cause of particular disability is and whether or not there might be a cure for that. And so that really, as I mentioned, made Camp Hill stand out as a radically different op option in the mid 20th century. Um, and then, you know, sort of, this is, this is sort of a longer story. I can continue, or if you have, if you want to stop me, that's fine. No, please continue. I'm really interested. Okay. Um, so then, then we get to the 1970s back in our own context in the U.S. And disability rights advocates began to challenge the perspective of disability as medical defect, right? And they introduced what we know of as the social model of disability. And so what they were arguing was that disability wasn't caused by the impairment that a disabled person lived with. Disability was instead caused by the way society viewed people with disabilities and the built and social environments that we as a society created to exclude them. Hmm. And that may sound like a bit of a mouthful, but to make it concrete, if you think of a person who uses a wheelchair, okay. right, they are only disabled when they can't get into a building because it only has stairs. If they have access to a ramp, they're not disabled. So in that case, they can't be included because the infrastructure hasn't been designed in a way that includes them. It's been designed in a way that excludes them. So the perspective is that disability is caused by the obstacles that we as a society create to the inclusion of people with disabilities. It's not caused by whatever the specific impairment is that the person lives with. So, so disability rights in the United States has focused on lifting those kinds of barriers to making sure that there are ramps and to empowering people with disabilities to live autonomous lives, to live lives that are fully integrated into the community. And again, lifting the barriers, both the social barriers and the infrastructural barriers that make that inclusion difficult. And at the same time, some in the disability rights movement have more recently begun pointing out ways in which these particular goals of empowerment and inclusion and sort of autonomy and self-determination, that these goals are really designed with the experiences of people with physical and sensory disabilities in mind, right? So that, that example of the wheelchair user. Okay. And in such cases, the absence of a ramp really may be one of the most important barriers. But what about the case of intellectual and developmental disabilities? You know, so if we have programs, I mentioned earlier the example of a young person with developmental or intellectual disability who's technically included in college because they may come to college or college campus and participate in some activities and eat in the dining hall. But if they don't feel included there in a deeper sense, in a more intangible sense, if they don't feel they belong, is that really inclusion, right? So it's just the physical presence of a person with disabilities in a public space inclusion. Does that really tick the box? And my research really leads me to conclude that some ways of approaching these sorts of intangible but hugely important qualities like social well-being and belonging was lost when the center of autism research shifted from Austria to the United States. 
And so Camp Hill is really an interesting example of how this mid-20th century Austrian approach can offer something that American approaches that are focused on rights and empowerment haven't done quite so much such a good job with. And at the same time, we need to be aware of how the holistic Austrian approach can and has been used in extremely harmful ways. It's a taking a more holistic approach, looking at the whole child instead of focusing on a particular diagnosis that has been used in horrifying ways that was used in the Nazi uh, euthanasia program as a way to diagnose a child and a whole child as you know, a hopeless case of as, as having a life not worth living. And there's been some really important research on that um, recently and on Hans Asperger's participation in that and his use of holistic diagnoses. So I don't, I don't want to take our attention away from that, but I want to say that, yeah, I think I want to say that Camp Hill communities also, I, yeah, I just want to add to that, that Camp Hill communities are also struggling with some of that you know, some of the, the more difficult sides of or implications of that holistic approach, right? So some Camp Hill communities have rightly been accused of not paying enough attention to rights and empowerment. Because, you know, as I've described, Camp Hill has a very specific way of life. And for a really long time, community members with disabilities were simply expected to adapt to that way of life, even if it wasn't necessarily to their choosing. And so there weren't a lot of different food options. Everybody just ate together as a family and you, you eat what the family makes or the household makes. So that's just one example. So I, I don't want to suggest that a, that the sort of mid-century Austrian approach is a fix-all, um, a cure-all, or that's a bad choice of terms. But I think that the way that it... The way that its holistic perspective allows people to think more broadly about the problem of belonging is useful, and that the American, the more American approach, thinking about rights and empowerment, is also useful, and that both of these sort of aspirations could be sort of beneficially integrated better than they are. Um. Since you mentioned Asperger, let me ask the question about, so it, it seems to me that your findings were how complicated this sort of transatlantic um, tension was with this Austrian emphasis on belonging and meaning, but how Americans sort of prioritize milestones and rights. But while you're in this research journey, you discovered something surprising. Do you want to talk about that, about the friendship, um, uh, what you found about Dr. Koenig and Asperger? Yes, absolutely. So I was really surprised to find positive mentions of Hans Asperger's work in Carl Koenig's books and essays on disability, particularly autism, from the period after the Holocaust. Um, so Asperger's important contribution, his diagnosis, right, of autism in this category came in 1943, and then Koenig cited this in other publications after the war. And Koenig followed the work of the other Austrian autism researchers, right, this whole network that had dispersed 
So he followed the researchers in the United States, but he especially appreciated Asperger's work. And that really surprised me uh, because Asperger collaborated with the Nazi euthanasia program. And one has to assume that Koenig didn't know about that. I mean, I have no evidence either way, but he would have known that two thirds of the medical faculty in Vienna had been Jewish before 1938. And that Asperger had been a significant but not a leading figure in autism research in child psychiatry more, more broadly before 1938. And that he benefited a lot, his career benefited a lot from the flight, the murder and the suicide in some cases uh-huh. of his Jewish colleagues. So this is something that Koenig had to have known. So it surprised me to find this connection, and it surprised me even more when I read passages from Koenig's diary and found out that he and Asperger corresponded, and they shared research data, and Koenig visited him a number of times in Austria, and that Asperger also visited Camp Hill in Scotland. Oh, my. Yeah. So this was all in the early to mid-1950s. And it really perplexed me. So I went back and I read their work on autism more closely. And the connection became clearer. They they shared a holistic approach. And I've talked a little bit about that holistic approach. Uh, So Koenig's account of autism mirrored Asperger's in its holism and in the way that it talked about autism as a very sort of singular individuality, a kind of purely authentic self. And that's very complicated, and I probably don't have time to get into it. But the the point is that because they thought of autism as a very authentic kind of self, a singular individuality, they understood the autistic person as a person who is, in a really profound sense, alone. And that made the problem of belonging really important to both of them. And so... Asperger actually referred at least one child that I read about in Koenig's diary to Camp Hill. So the way that Asperger used that, or the implications, right, of of Asperger's thinking about autism in the Nazi period is extremely disturbing. But I do think it's also important to, to notice, right, that Koenig had a very similar way of thinking about it, and that he used it that same approach in a very radically different way. And so that's why I would argue that this Austrian approach that the two of them shared can't only be associated with the Nazi child euthanasia program, right? That it doesn't have a particular political or ideological connection anymore than anthroposophy does, any more than health food does, any more than all of these other elements of the research I've been doing. It's almost like, I mean, this is probably really dumbing it down, um, perhaps too much, so forgive me. I doubt it. But it, it, <laughs> it's almost like, though you both shared this idea that the most important thing for an individual is to belong to the community. And that one's approach was if if you cannot belong, then you know, then what is your meaning, you know, and had a radically 
terrible uh, solution to that. And Dr. Koenig's approach was, we will find a way to include this person, this being in this community. And perhaps that was informed by um, the anthroposophy or in, or in other experiences that he had that Asperger didn't. The only thing I would, I would add is just Asperger is very complicated and there is some really interesting recent work on him and some debate about how to interpret his collaboration. And there's one argument that very much goes in the direction you went, right? That, that Asperger's collaboration with the Nazi Child Euthanasia Program was directly connected to his sense that, or his perspective, I should say, that belonging in the community was the most important thing and that those who couldn't belong had to be expelled from the community or even killed. And there's another interpretation, which is that Asperger was basically a careerist Hmm. and that he you know, that his career did benefit tremendously in the Nazi period and that he collaborated for careerist reasons. And there's, there's evidence for that as well. I mean, Asperger was not one of the sort of monsters of Nazi medicine, right? The scale of his collaboration and his actions is just not on the level of, you know, the sort of worst cases in of, of doctors who committed various medical crimes, including participating in the T4 or euthanasia program. So I think that the, the general characterization of Koenig and Asperger as sharing a perspective on autism that was very much wrapped up in concern about belonging and the problem of the connection between the person with autism and the community, it's its hard to say exactly to what extent that sort of motivated Asperger's participation mm. or not. Um, and if you look at his work after the war and where it actually has quite a, you know, an affinity with, with Koenig and where they're appreciating each other's work, that to me suggests that the careerism, the opportunism argument has a lot to to say for it, but this is still an ongoing debate. Thinking of these um, two doctors and their colleagues and uh, that period, what, do you, what would you say are the broader implications we can draw from their work today for the history of medicine or for disability studies? Hmm. I think in terms of the history of medicine and disability, there are one of the the sort of larger implications is is that there are models for thinking beyond rights and benchmarks and inclusion that came to the US with Central European Jewish refugees. And we need to pay more attention to that tradition, that there's something useful in it. At the same time, we need to think critically about that tradition and the ways in which it's been you know, uh, misused and the ways in which Camp Hill is not perfect and the ways in which Camp Hill could 
also learned from the emphasis in the United States. But I think Kempil's also, and these this medical tradition, right? It's also part of a bigger story about the counterculture that's really interesting. Awesome. The counterculture is uh, is also more complicated and more politically diverse and nuanced than we tend to think, than I certainly thought as a teenager. Um, there are lots of things that came to be seen as extremely fringe in this country because they were associated with the counterculture and because the counterculture was so polarizing and so divisive right, in the 60s and 70s. But there's a lot of really interesting research going on right now. Scholars are doing a lot of interesting research about the history of drugs and psychedelics, particularly alternative medicine and science, and the relationship between these and the counterculture, and finding that some really important elements of the counterculture actually trace their origins back to Central Europe and to German and Austrian life reform movements. Oh, my. Yeah. How so? Well, some of the, the central sort of elements of the counterculture, the back-to-the-land impulse, the concern with health food, with having a closer connection to nature, between, you know, between people and nature, spending time outside, sending children to schools in the woods outside. These things come from Central Europe. And they came over to the United States. And then they, you know, we have this very, we have the sense that the counterculture in the U.S. was this reaction of a particular generation to in a sort of an oppressive mainstream. Mm, that's what I thought. Right? That's what I thought too. But um, but the but what's really fascinating is that the Central European life reform movements that inspired some of this didn't have that radical character, right? They're not about rebellion. They're not about being on the fringe. They're not about being particularly left wing. Hmm. And so Camp Hill is part of that larger story about the transfer of ideas and of culture from Central Europe to the United States and then back again even. And the really complicated cultural and political elements that are involved in that. Where are you with this project now? What are your plans? Ah, well, I'm actually in a little bit of a predicament because... Oh, no. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's a good predicament. It's a good predicament. Okay. <laughs> because there are, I mean, as you'll probably have noticed at this point, there are sort of two stories that I'm telling. And one is a story about medicine and disability. And the other is a story about migration, diaspora communities, and religious communities, religious minorities. And both of those stories are central to Camp Hill. You need both of them to really understand the movement. But the question or my predicament is should they be in the same book or am I actually writing two books? So there's a lot of literature on Camp Hill's history that's published within the movement by anthroposophists. And that's great. It's been really useful to me. But I think there are other ways to tell Camp Hill's history that are also fascinating and important. There needs to be an Austrian Jewish history of Camp Hill. And what I mean by that is just that the founders, all the one or two of them were 
people from Jewish backgrounds who had grown up in Jewish households and their their formative experience was very much shaped by Jewish Vienna. And it is important to put Camp Hill in that context and also ask how, what Camp Hill can teach us about that history, about the history of Jewish Vienna. Hmm. And then there also needs to be a book, I think, on Camp Hill as part of sort of broader disability history internationally, right? A disability history in Austria, in the UK, and in the US. Because again, I think Camp Hill can shed a lot of new light on that history. So my question is just, you know, when can I do both and should I be doing them at the same time or not? So I have chapters written in both, you know, the, in both areas and it's a question of whether they, they go together or whether it's two projects. So I suppose we're, we're really long past the time that we, we allotted, but there's one other thing. If, oh, please, if you're willing, we are too, please. With really generous support from, from the Botsdiever Institute, I did archival research and interviews with Camp Hill community members and members of Camp Hill community members with disabilities um, in Europe and in the US. So in Vienna, I did research at the Vienna Municipal Archives and the Austrian State Archives. And I was looking at records of Nazi property seizures as well as reparations and compensation applications. And I was doing that in order to try to trace the refugees and their families. They all lost relatives in the Holocaust. Interesting. And I think that's a really important context for understanding Camp Hill. Right? It's not just that this was a, a group of people who'd grown up in Jewish homes, although they came to consider themselves as Christian. Uh, these were all families that had lost family members in the Holocaust. Then in London, um, I did research at the Central British Fund for German Jewry, which was the organization, one of the organizations uh, responsible for the kinder transport, uh, the, this program through which 10,000 Jewish children from continental Europe were brought to the United Kingdom and survived the war. Most of them were not reunited with their families. Most of their families died. And as I mentioned, some of the first children to come to Camp Hill came through the kinder transport. So I was looking at their records and then I was actually able to do an interview with one of them, which was amazing. Um, all of these people's stories are amazing. But this was a little girl who had come over on the kinder transport and the kinder transport had actually arranged for her to be sent to Camp Hill because they were looking for families that spoke German. So she had this very unusual, she, she didn't have a disability, but she had this unusual childhood um, in Camp Hill, both going to the local public school and also helping out in the communities and caring for disabled children who were just a little younger than she was. And then I did research at the British National Archives, the University of London Archives, the British Medical Association Archives, as well as the archives of the Wellcome Library and the Bodleian Libraries. And I was, again, tracing the first group of, of refugees. And I was looking more broadly at the treatment of refugee doctors and medical students in the UK. And I was trying to find the deliberations behind that list of 50 doctors that Carl Koenig got on, right? The list of 50 doctors who were allowed to, were granted entry to the UK and not only entry, but permission to requalify for practice in the UK. 
And that was really difficult because the British Medical Association was very concerned about these refugee doctors because Central European and particularly Viennese doctors were very sought after in the UK. So they were worried about the competition. And so it's really fascinating to me that Koenig, who practiced alternative medicine, got on that list of 50 doctors. And unfortunately, the records just are not there. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was in such suspense. I know. <laughs> it was very, very frustrating. But... <clears throat> I, I also didn't know how Koenig had even come to be on the list of doctors considered for those 50 spots, because in his own memoir, he said that it was a total surprise when his visa arrived, that he doesn't know how that happened. And so I was doing all this research, hoping to be able to answer that question too. And then I got to Aberdeen, which was my last stop. Um, and I was doing research at the Carl Koenig and the Camp Hill archives there. And I was able to get a hold of Carl Koenig's handwritten, Carl Koenig's mother's handwritten memoir. And she says that Koenig just applied to be on the list of 50 doctors and that he came and checked her mailbox every day. And finally, you know, he was accepted. So I don't, I don't know what's going on there. <laughs> but um, yeah, so there's all, a bit of a mystery around all of this, but I, I somehow still find it, find it fascinating. Um, so then, it, yeah, in Aberdeen, I was able to do research in, in those two archives and also to interview people in the Camp Hill communities where the archives are located. These are the original communities in Scotland. And then back in the U.S., I did interviews with elderly community members who remember the founders and the early years of the movement because they came over from uh, the U.K. early on to found the first communities in the U.S. And so this is how I got a, a sense of the early movement. And it was really helpful because it gave me, you know, I knew Camp Hill as it is today, or as it's been since, you know, the sort of 1980s, where it's pretty stable in, in what it looks like and how it works. And I really got a sense from these interviews of how trial and error it was and how the original intentional community really was formed out of this need to innovate out of the difficult circumstances that the, the refugees faced. So it was a wonderful research trip. That's terrific. I have really enjoyed talking with you and I'm so grateful for all that you've shared with us. Well, thank you so much. It's been really fun. So thank you. Thanks for listening to our second podcast with Catherine Soros on the Camp Hill Movement. If you missed the first podcast, we hope you will join us for that interesting discussion on the origins of the movement. This episode was produced by Dr. Catherine Sorrells, Elizabeth Leitzel, and myself. Our theme music is Hungarian Dance by Underscore Orchestra. I'm Adriana Lacona. Thanks for listening. The Botskiever Austrian-American Podcast is produced by the Botskeeper Institute for Austrian American Studies, which seeks to promote an understanding of the historic relationship between the United States and Austria, including the Habsburg Empire. To learn more about our grants, publications, events, and other programming, visit botskeeperbias.org or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube.